0: your cultural competence listen to interesting stories learn about the cultural pitfalls and how to avoid them get the global perspective here at culture matters podcast on international business we help you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences helping you develop your cultural competence Hello and welcome
1: to the Culture Matters podcast. We're on episode number forty-four zero, and today we have Julie Fisher as our guest. With a doctorate from Johns Hopkins, Julie Fisher Melton has been a consultant on microenterprise and on partnerships between northern and southern NGOs, Save the Children, Technosurf, and many other organizations. She taught world population at the Yale Forestry School and Comparative Politics plus the politics of third world development at Connecticut College. Most recently, she spent 10 years as a program officer at the Kettering Foundation. Her numerous publications include three books about indigenous NGOs, The Road from Rio, Sustainable Development and the Non-Governmental Movement in the Third World, non-governments, NGOs, and the political development of the third world. And finally, Importing Democracy, the role of NGOs in South Africa, Tajikistan, and Argentina. In this interview with Julie, we'll talk more and much more about what democracy is, how you import, quote-unquote, I'm making air quotes here, uh, democracy, and what are some countries that actually are doing well? What are some countries that might need a more you know, somewhat tweaking here and there and just to um, uh, give you a peek insight seems to be when it comes to certain aspects of democracy mongolia seems to be ahead of japan of certain aspects let's go to the interview
0: it's time for this week's guest at the culture matters podcast here's your host chris smith
1: good morning julie because i think it is good morning where you are right
0: yes thank you Good it morning. is <laughs> all right
1: we, we've just uh, been discussing um, before we uh, before actually I hit record that uh, recording a podcast is actually kind of nice in a way because you you can actually do this in your in your pajamas as well if it if it's, would suit you like that so I'm not but let not let's not go that way but um, Julie tell us a little bit more about yourself we've heard some sort of introduction uh, of you already in the beginning of this podcast but you know a little bit about yourself where do you come from where are you currently and what is your cultural frame of reference? A lot of questions in one, but, you know, the floor is yours.
2: I was born in San Francisco and when I was a very small child, I heard Spanish a lot because my grandparents had a, a maid who took care of me part time. So I think that although I didn't come out bilingual, I learned Spanish very fast when I uh, was in Mexico as a teenager with my parents and later later in Chile as a mm-hmm. uh for an exchange student. Uh-huh. Um, I, dev- I, I went to the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, Yeah, got a master's, uh, got married, uh, had two boys, uh, and went back to school and did my dissertation while uh, my children were preschool age. Uh-huh. It was very tough.
1: I can imagine that's, uh, I mean, raising two kids and then going back to school is not the easiest thing.
2: Well, I, yeah, I had done most of the coursework, so it was just a matter of writing the dissertation. Which is still a heck of
1: a job, Anyway, in any case.
2: I wrote about uh, squatter neighborhood organizations in Latin America. Mm-hmm. Uh, as people invade land, they um, develop a kind of collective community organization, mm-hmm. uh, which then goes on to demand services from the government and also engages in self-help activities to improve the – and that was that was way back that I wrote about them. But – I think it sparked my interest in uh, the grassroots as the fountain of change, be it economic, be it political. That has been, uh, I would say, citizen activism, citizen participation has been the the keystone, if you will, of mm-hmm. my entire career, whether I worked in microenterprise development, whether I taught, of course, in world population, where... Uh, Once women gain uh, education as individuals and uh, are able to choose how many children they want, they become more active as well. So there's a whole range of individual activities in development, be it as simple as boiling contaminated water or whatever, that leads to – an overall slowly, slowly better collective solution. Mm -hmm. And then people once, for example, uh, I did a consulting job in Peru and (laughs) found that the women who were, this was for TechnoServe, they were helping cooperatives become better businesses, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And once women were in the cooperatives, they started also attending the town council meetings, which had been 100% 100% male before that. So this is the way that you know citizen participation happens. This is a way that, if you will, political culture begins to change.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and that's sort of the past. I'm giving you very sketchy look at my mm-hmm. past career, which was mainly as an international consultant for international NGOs. And then I worked for 10 years, the last 10 years before I retired for the Kettering Foundation, which is an operating foundation, a, a kind of think tank on democracy, and I learned about deliberative democracy, which is a particular form of political participation at the community level. It's more structured. Uh, it engages people in weighing difficult choices mm-hmm. and dealing with what Kettering, and I think it's a good word, calls wicked, wicked issues, complex <laughs> wicked
1: issues. What's an example of a wicked issue?
2: Well, let me let me give you. Um, I would say uh, the whole issue of uh, family planning mm-hmm. is a wicked issue in this country and uh, abortion is a wicked issue, no, even more yeah. wicked. No. Now you're, you're uh, on the other hand, you know, paving a road is not a issue, wicked issue. Everybody in the neighborhood agrees it should be paved.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yes, 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 yes. And uh, currently um Julie, you're you're where are we uh, uh, picking you up? Where
2: is the Skype call going? Are you in, in San Francisco still? No, 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 that was a long, long ago. <laughs> no, I grew up in Boulder, Colorado. Um, I uh, worked in Washington, DC. Uh, my late husband and I worked, I, I moved to um, New Haven, Connecticut. Uh-huh. Um, he very sadly died when my children were seven and 10.
0: Hmm.
2: I've remarried. Uh, we now live in uh, Maine on an island.
1: Okay.: All right, excellent. That's a wonderful location. At least that that area of the United States. And by the way, San Francisco is, of course, as well. Now, Julie, you're American, I would assume. I mean, being born yes. in, the, in San Francisco. Why, why or what? What I mean, you, you said this sparked my interest, but why outside the United States and why not inside your own country?
2: Well, I do want to go back to my grandparents in San Francisco. My grandfather um, was in Mexico during the Mexican Revolution in uh-huh. 1910 and was fluent in Spanish. And the reason uh, – there's a wonderful story. I don't know whether it's – it's during the revolution, a lot, most Americans were getting murdered in their beds. Mm-hmm. And he and my grandmother and my oldest uncle were given a revolutionary escort over the mountains to Texas where they were safe. And they were given it because they were fluent in Spanish and people in Mexico liked them. So they were kind of a – even though my grandfather was rather – conservative in his political views and and thought Porfirio Diaz, the dictator, had been pretty good, you know, Mm -hmm. he still had this affinity for people and ability to relate to people. And literally his fluency in Spanish saved their lives. And I wouldn't be here but for that.
1: That's, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's indeed really profound like that. And, and, and so why, why would you have, why have you focused your efforts mainly outside the U.S.?
2: Well, as I say, when I was little and stayed with them, my grandfather told me all kinds of stories about Mexico. It got me very interested. I I started out as a Latin American specialist when I was in grad school. And and a lot of my field work, most of my field work has been done in Latin America because I'm fluent in Spanish. Um, So that's, you know, uh, that's the reason I think I think my interest was sparked very early by him.
1: It's so like it's like the travel bug sort of bit you in the international yeah, like that. yeah. yeah uh-huh. I can imagine um, and then my parents
2: yeah. i spent uh, my parents and I spent a, a a semester. My father had a sabbatical when he was teaching at the University of Colorado, and he was just writing a book there he didn't he wasn't doing anything in Mexico other than teaching English to a class of twelve year olds which was a real revelation for him as a university professor. <laughs> But, uh, we uh, we lived in Morelia for a, a semester, and that was sort of that sort of sol- solidified my interest in yeah. Latin America.
1: Yeah, it's, when when these things happen to you at a at an early enough age, it's, it's hard to get rid of. I guess in a way, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's my my first experience was uh, at being a Dutchman myself, um, going to the United States in 1976. I was 13 then. Um so uh-huh. and that was i mean the world was a big place then, and then you know it's you would arrive at John F Kennedy airport, which still had that old um copy of the uh, uh the Wright brothers' plane hanging right. in the uh, in the arrival halls there. So and, mm-hmm. and and I mean that was a like a a world shock in a way and a culture shock in a way and it's it's I've always been coming back and always been traveling ever since and like I said if you're young enough you get sort of bitten by this travel bug or the international bug as um, as such um I'd like to 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 uh, segue into part more part of your professional bits which is your um you you've done something with micro enterprise evolution or evaluation rather and you've done that mainly in Latin America can you in, in a couple of words explain what what that is and then maybe in a few more words, explain where where the friction possibly was. How culturally different is uh, Latin America from the United States?
2: Uh, if I can answer the first question first. Um, yeah. Very similar in some ways and very different in others. But I think microenterprise in Latin America has taken because there is a kind of entrepreneurial spirit in much of Latin America, which has been squelched by stupid, I mean, really bad governance and Mm. bad education and inaccessibility to education. Uh, But when people are given the opportunity to create a micro business with either a micro grant or a loan, uh, particularly women seem to grab that opportunity and run with it. It's quite remarkable how well they do. Um, I evaluated... um, close to 90 businesses in guatemala and ecuador for an organization called trickle up that does that starts people off with micro grants and uh the success rate after three years we looked at three-year-old businesses was still around 89 90 percent which is quite remarkable for businesses anywhere uh much less in, in poor countries
1: and you say more most most in 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 a country like Guatemala if that's been offered you say that most women most it tends to be more women than men picking yes. up these uh, these micro grants as you say um does does that upset the man on the other side because that's that's an influence that they they might not have been waiting for well uh, yes and that's a good thing <laughs> might be a good thing but how how do you deal with that
2: how do well let me give you a, st- a story again yes. i remember going into a a, a chicken business that was started with a micro grant in guatemala mm-hmm. and um, the husband of the woman who had started it had this little basket that he picked up and he walked around the chicken coops and he put i don't know six or eight freshly laid eggs into it and he presented it to me and i was so touched by this gesture and i said to the organizer later because i didn't want to embarrass him at the time mm-hmm. How was he at the beginning? Oh, she said he was totally opposed to his wife taking this loan and starting a business on, on her own. And I said, well, how did it change? Well, she began earning money and that spoke very loud and clear to him. <laughs> He's a big supporter now.
1: I can imagine. Yes, indeed. And is that something like uh, particular to, to, to Guatemala or have you seen the opposite as well? Where we're where in that indeed um, entrepreneurial women or, or aspiring entrepreneurial women are are getting so much resistance from, from maybe their husbands or their society where they're in.
2: I have never seen that anywhere.
1: So it always it always seems to I would to work.
2: say I would say microenterprise is probably the single best entree to gender equality that there is yeah. in yeah. the developing world.
1: Would you say the gender equality on the very quick question on that topic is more is, is there's more gender equality in the US than there is in Latin America?
2: Yes, I would have to say that. That doesn't mean that I'm satisfied with it no, here. No, no. no.
1: No, no. There's a, it's a relative comparison. It can always be better. Yeah. But, but relatively, you can say in the U.S., yes. you, there's more more equality like that. Right. Okay. Um, what other possibly cultural differences could you pinpoint with your experience uh, being American and working there in Latin America between the U.S. and uh, Latinos, if you could say? Or, well, or... let
2: me talk about the part of my book on Argentina, my book Importing Democracy, uh-huh. which came out two years ago. Yeah which is about democratization, NGOs, non-governmental organizations that promote democracy. One of the differences that I noticed in Argentina between, let's say, the U.S. and Argentina, even though I was fluent in Spanish, I found in interviewing people that these uh, activists who are at the forefront of democratic change are very aware of some of these differences that they think are detrimental actually to Argentina. And let me give you one example Mm of that.
0: Yes,
1: please.
2: There is a word in English, which is used a lot by political scientists called accountability, meaning how accountable is the government, whether it's local or national to it's to the, to the local population. Mm -hmm. How accountable is the government to the citizen to simplify it? that term and that concept are not really part of the ordinary vocabulary in Argentina or in other Latin American countries. Yeah. Uh, several people said we don't have a good translation of that into Spanish. And that, that's fascinating because there are some things that, you know, A, don't translate and B, would be very positive if people began to understand them.
1: And, and hold their go- their governments uh, responsible accountable. and accountable
2: rather. The, but the concept, you have to understand the concept. Now, having said that, I think that the other side of the coin is that sometimes we try to promote ideas that are not suitable for the context. And so the, the, the tricky part is knowing what works and what doesn't. Can you give an example that, of that? i, I what? had called the book Importing Democracy, because that means people in those countries choose for themselves the ideas that suit their own cultural context. Mm-hmm. And they combine those with the other part of what they do, which is the recovery of local traditions that are democratic. Most countries, even very authoritarian ones, have some local traditions that are democratic or partially democratic Mm-hmm. Such as village councils, that's the most obvious. In Tajikistan, they're called Majlis. Mm-hmm. Now, on the other hand, and this is, Majlis are a great example, Majlis managed to survive the period when Tajikistan was part of the Soviet Union, which is quite amazing mm-hmm. when you think about it. They somehow hung on and did little things at the village level, continued in their traditions. Now the that was a plus and and that survival of those organizations has been very important and will be con, will continue to be into the future. However, those organizations have traditionally been made up solely of men. So one of the things that happened when democratisation NGOs began to emerge in Tajikistan in the 90s and the 2000s was that they began to bring women into the into the discussions at the village level. While they were supporting these local groups and while they were teaching them some kinds of techniques. Now, that wasn't an outsider doing it. That was a a Tajik, but intermediary level, educated professional Mm -hmm. NGO Mm -hmm. coming into the village level. So they they are recovering local traditions. At the same time, they're changing them. They're modernizing them in some ways.
1: Yeah, it's inescapable like that, isn't it? Yes. Yes. It, you mentioned then, I mean, this is Tajikistan and you've mentioned Argentina. If you know, look, because you've done, um, there are like three countries in, um, yes. I think, in important democracy, you talk about South Africa, Tajikistan and Argentina. Um, Tajikistan and Argentina, I'm not mm-hmm. saying that they're, they're the same, but they could be potentially different from South America, uh, sorry, South Africa. Which I um, say prides itself for having a so-called first-world legal system, so to speak, and yes. I mean the yes. the either the ex-influence of of the Dutch and later on the uh, predominantly more the, the the British, as such. How do people react to that? Because I mean, a lot of the outside world would say, look at South Africa and say, well, either it's a democracy or it's a democracy where they've just elected the wrong president or something like that.
2: I would call, but actually, Argentina and South Africa are far more similar to each other than they are to Tajikistan. Mm-hmm. I would call both Argentina and South Africa uh, flawed democracies. And I would call Tajikistan an autocracy or a dictatorship. So I tried to get both into the book, both mm-hmm. types of systems. Now the differences between South Africa and Argentina are very interesting. As you say, our, uh, South Africa has a has a very advanced legal system, yep. uh very positive. Doesn't mean there aren't problems, doesn't mean the NGOs aren't working on some of those problems. Mm-hmm. But uh compared to Argentina, where uh uh The legal system is on paper very good and in practice often very corrupt. Yes, there's corruption in South Africa, but it is not as endemic as it is in Argentina. On the other hand, Argentina has a more advanced uh, degree of socioeconomic development Mm -hmm. in that more people live better in Argentina. They've still got poverty, but nothing like South Africa. And in the long run, the South African democracy is In danger because of the incredible amount of unemployment and inequality Mm -hmm. in that country that continues despite all the progress they've made, and the political progress has been extraordinary, as you know.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Has it? I mean, it's been yes, it has been extraordinary. The Rainbow Nation, ever since the release of of Nelson Mandela, of course. Have they made progress, or are they are they making a U turn? What what is what what were your no
2: I, I think, uh, you know, in terms of the educational profile, I mean, to, to give you just an example by one person, one young man that we interviewed in South Africa, uh, my husband went with me on these uh-huh. trips to the three countries, and yeah. it was extraordinary for both of us. And uh, may, I'm getting off the subject here, but mainly because he's fluent in Russian. So he was wonderful in Tajikistan. <laughs> 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 yes, but anyway, in South Africa, we had no language barrier, basically. Uh-huh. And um, I want to get back on track. I got sidetracked there. Um, you were asking me about, remind me. Uh, whether South Africa was taking a U-turn. Oh, no, I don't believe that. Um, if you look at, for, let's just take crime statistics. Yes. Well, they haven't gone down over the long run, and they went up for a period in the 90s and the early 2000s that's kind of stabilized. That doesn't mean it's a good situation. It's dreadful, Mm -hmm. but I wouldn't say that's a U-turn. Let's talk about, uh, housing, uh, you know, much better housing for the poor than there used to be, not where it should be. Again, clean water, all those kinds of development indicators are pretty good. And I would argue that the democratization movement in South Africa has strengthened the legal system, has, uh, given South Africans, uh, more choices in terms of political participation. And, you know, we can get into more details, but I think um, if you think about democratization not as democracy, mm-hmm. uh, because there is no perfect democracy on this earth, mm-hmm. uh but as a process going in a positive direction, then then I think South Africa has done well. It has not taken a U-turn. Okay. Progress is too slow, particularly on the socioeconomic issues. And that that's the part that worries me about the long-term trajectory hmm. for South Africa. Hmm.
1: Okay. Is there um, – I mean, I'm, this, there the countries running through my mind. India claims to be the biggest democracy in the world. Uh, mm-hmm. is, would you consider them being a democracy?
2: Well, again, I struggle with the word democracy. India is far more democratized than most third world countries. And if you want to call it a democracy in in a general way, I would certainly put it in the category with South Africa and Argentina. Uh, It has a longer run uh, of, of fair elections, but elections are only part of what's needed. And I would argue that the broader topic of political participation, including elections, but it includes a lot more. I talked about village level. I talked about NGOs at I the understand. intermediary level. There's a whole uh, topic which has to do with the way civil society develops. And one of the most dangerous global trends that I see it is, is uh, compared to, say, 10 years ago when I started researching this book,
0: mm-hmm.
2: is that um, at that time, I had the feeling that most uh, political leaders, be they democratic, reasonably democratic, or dictatorial, were simply not aware of NGOs at all. They simply had no consciousness about them. Now they are aware in a very negative sense, and they are repressing them. Whether you talk about China, whether you talk about Russia, whether you talk about, you know, many, many, many countries, where uh, there's a book called Another Book I Could Plug: uh, uh, The Dictator's Learning Curve. Um, which basically makes that point that dictators are getting smarter. So, in response, uh, I think the global community has to get smarter, and I have some very specific recommendations on how that could happen in a way that doesn't become the kiss of death for reformers.
1: Okay. Yeah. Well, we'll ask you that. These kind of tips uh, at the uh, the end of the conversation, if that's okay. Um, sure. Are there are there countries that are doing? Um, exceptionally well and are there on the on the other side of the same scale are there countries that actually are are doing really bad and are, are maybe becoming even worse than they are I'm thinking well, about Zimbabwe or, or possibly Pakistan or something like that
2: well Syria is the obvious I mean yeah. you have well that's war yeah sure I mean you, you know um, I'm thinking of countries that are doing better well uh, Botswana in Africa is a good example um, I, I think um uh, oh. Mongolia interestingly enough is one of the more democrat is probably rated the most democratic country in Asia hmm. at this point.
1: Um, better than um, like that, Thailand or Japan?
2: Well, Japan is a developed country, so I'm not okay. I'm I'm sort of not you know, I'm looking yeah. at countries that are not developed sure mostly. Yeah. But, but you're right, of course, Japan is a more developed a democracy, mm-hmm. but if you look at some of the indicators of de- democracy that Freedom House and other organizations do, Mongolia comes out ahead of Japan in some ways. It's fascinating.
1: Interesting. <clears throat> um, and and uh, like you mentioned, Syria being on the other side of the spectrum, are there an, a country like uh, like Zimbabwe, for instance?
2: Is that- well, Zimbabwe. I mean. What's happened at the, at the apex of politics in Zimbabwe is dreadful and, uh, you know, it's really made thing. it's really set the country back. On the other hand, Zimbabwe has an incredible uh, educated black population, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, we kept meeting uh, – when we were in South Africa, we would meet a waiter who turned out to be a trained engineer, mm-hmm. a black Zimbabwean who left Zimbabwe because of the situation yeah. there and then gets to South Africa and can't get a job because preferences are being given to South Africans. Yeah. And then, But the problem is South Africa has a shortage of trained engineers and they want to give preferences to blacks over whites. So, you know, why can't they give them to the Zimbabweans? Yeah, That's what sure. one would ask. Yes.
1: Yes. Yeah. Well, I've seen I've seen these uh, situations as well. Indeed, a waiter at the sushi restaurant turns out to be uh, some sort of uh, the professor, higher educated person, and he comes from Zimbabwe. But this is the only job he can get. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's awkward. Um. It, in in countries like Syria, uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, as well. These I mean, war zones, half war zones. Is is there? Where do you start when when in situations like that? Because, I mean, a war will come to an end eventually. This this, yeah, this just, It's not going to last 100 and 100 years anymore. I just so where do you start broken. afterwards?
2: Yeah, a blog that I thought was very interesting on Syria. And he goes through all sort of all the options historically for how civil wars end because nothing else is going to happen until you do that. Mm-hmm. And he comes out on the side of they're all incredibly uh, difficult, uh, you know, including just sheer exhaustion, which happened in Lebanon with yep. the Lebanese Civil War. Uh, but uh, it comes out on the side of a partition uh, in Syria, which would allow certain areas to become more viable and, um, you know, would allow islands of sanity to begin to develop as they even in Syria, there are local people doing trying to survive and doing positive things at the local level. And sometimes I think those efforts are so eclipsed in the media by, you know, everything else that's going on. Mm-hmm. But those, maybe maybe partition is, is the only sort of step along with, as part of an international negotiation. For the life of me, I can't understand why the global community has been so unable to sort of come together and talk about what to do. I mean, I'm in, actually encouraged by the fact that Putin and and Obama are going to talk mm-hmm. about Syria and, and ISIS in Syria. I mean, how else could we begin to do anything there?
1: Yeah. Just can I a step one step back? And you talk about partition. What do you mean with, exactly with partition?
2: Well, I am not a Syria expert, so I don't want to get into great detail about sure. it. But there are areas in Syria which are culturally and religiously similar, and they could form the basis of some kind of okay. partition.
1: Right. And then start and work work their way up from there. So exactly. Yeah. Okay.
2: Exactly. Good
1: point. Um, before we uh, sort of uh, wrap up this conversation, um, we've been talking about developing countries uh, predominantly and mentioned Japan, but decided that is more of a developed nation. And how about the developed world, say the Western world, including Australia and Japan? Are there any like um, democracies in your view that sort of come up on top and democracies, which we would call democracies that might, you know, might need some tweaking here and there?
2: I think they all need tweaking. <laughs> I know. Well, we,
1: we all know that there's no perfect system
2: and that no, the, the least say, perfect you know, democracy would be. The Scandin- Scandinavian countries in Germany also, ironically, have you know are more advanced than we are in terms of being able to govern. I mean, we, are, we have become less able to govern, not more. And we
1: as U.S. then.
2: Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Okay. And I usually don't talk about the U.S., but I, but you know, it's hard not to these days.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you are still a dominant, dominating or an important force, if not dominating force in the world. So it's, it's, you can't get away from it. I hope
2: we'll have a a few minutes to talk about the international donors and what they might do. Sure. Yeah, go, go ahead. Okay. Well, I, I'm only going to mention a few of the steps that I have in the chapter, but I think the, Number one recommendation would be do your homework before you intervene, even in a positive way, Mm -hmm. in favor of, say, democracy or democratization or advocates for democratization in another country. Um, And I do think that's part of strengthening ties between global and national democracy advocates. Mm -hmm. And I would say there should be official assistance. In other words, government to government assistance should try to focus more on on. Good behavior, whether it's uh, you know a government investing more in education or whatever, and uh, I think doing your homework is one way of becoming more politically astute. And you become that way through small collaborations with national partners,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and committing yourselves to certain national partners on a longer term basis, so that we're not just going in and going out in a year. Well, now we're supporting you, now we're not. But do your homework, so you find really good people who can guide you. Um, I think there should be more internships and exchanges among democratization NGOs. Why can't the international community, for example, support exchanges between young democracy advocates in Argentina and South Africa? Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, and I think uh, universities in in, um, most countries are really a pole of sanity, and they need to be integrated more into these efforts. In South Africa, a number of democratization NGOs are actually housed at universities, and that gives them a lot of support, mm-hmm. intellectual as well as financial. I think uh, on the cultural front, if I can, I think anti-corruption efforts are absolutely crucial to anything else being able to happen.
1: Which is a big And one that's one. Really, how, how do you tackle that? Where, where do you start there?
2: Well, that's t- almost too much for us to talk about, <laughs> but um, it- uh, corruption undermines both economic and political progress, and I think I think Transparency International is is a very good international NGO that does excellent an excellent job on that. Mm-hmm. However, if you look at what the global effort, financially speaking, is on corruption, it's tiny. And I remember when we were in Argentina finding out that Poder Ciudadano, which is a democratization NGO. That is also happens to be the Argentine chapter for transparency international only at that time got five thousand dollars a year from transparency <laughs> now I'm not saying transparency ought to just be a money engine, but I mean that's not enough to do anything in Argentina
1: yep.
2: so that's just an illustration um I think changing the culture ironically and and I want to end on that since you really are that's there's a lot more that that donors can do um assessing long-term results, that kind of thing. Um, and a civil society assistance has to go beyond NGOs too. It has to go to media, it has to, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I would say that changing the culture, on, on the one hand, social scientists always say that um, other things are path dependent on social, on culture. In other words, you can't change the politics unless you change the culture.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: That's true. But My experience in the three countries that we looked at was that um, efforts to change the political culture could happen more quickly than other kinds of political change. For example, a summer camp in Tajikistan that that got international assistance and was run by Tajik NGOs to teach kids about democracy. Well, that's a really quick intervention that's appealing to donors and that'll have a long-run impact. Yeah. And it'll it will begin to change the political culture. So on the one hand, other things are path dependent on political culture. On the other hand, the, on the other hand, political culture uh, can be changed, and there are many examples of that in the in my book.
1: So can I just called important democracy,
2: importing democracy, the role of NGOs in South Africa, Tajikistan, and Argentina. My pen name, in case you have it different in the blog, is Julie Fisher. F I S H E R. All right. So it's, it's on Amazon. It's on the, your, your listeners might also want to go to the Kettering website, website kettering.org, if they're interested in, in delib- political deliberation, local community deliberation in the US as well as internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also available on my website, which is www.importingdemocracy.org. So I hope I've done all the, the sales pitch at the end here.
1: <laughs> you certainly have. Um, I, I want to wrap it up and sort of come to the, uh, uh, the usual ending that I usually use with, this, uh, with the Culture Matters podcast. And you've given us a lot of tips, NGOs as well, a lot of tips. If you would focus this on a more personal or individual level, um, what three tips would you give an individual, the audience, to become more culturally competent?
2: Travel. <laughs> yeah, well, it could be very mundane, it could be very simple. Yeah, read, travel, um, develop uh, ties between uh, local activist organizations in your own communities and do your, you know, Google activist organizations in other countries mm-hmm. that are interested in the same topic that your organization, there are a lot of, there are a lot of, you know, what I call citizen diplomacy efforts, Uh, people who um, develop ties with similar organizations, grassroots to grassroots in -hmm. in other countries. And a lot of that depends on, you know, whether somebody speaks a foreign language, you know, people's past history of travel, those kinds of uh, ties are just incredibly good. I mean, they just instinctively work better than the than the high-level ties often do.
1: Yes. All right. Um, thank you, Julie. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you and know more about you or whatever you're doing uh, currently or have done in the past, or for more information about your work as well, where can they find you? Where can they reach out to?
2: Well, they could go to LinkedIn Yeah. under Julie Fisher Melton. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd rather not give my email out sure. over the... But I think LinkedIn would be a good way. I'm also on Twitter. Um, and my Twitter handle is at import democracy. just import democracy.
1: Yeah, and that's it for now. All right, fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, come on this, uh, this podcast with all the knowledge that you've gained. Um, I'm pretty sure we'll talk to each other in the future. And I wish you a very fantastic day today. Take care then.
2: Okay, I'll look forward to hearing from you when this appears. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you, Julie,
1: again for coming online and doing the Skype interview. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. It's a it's a topic that's close to my heart. Talking about democracy um, because I I were watching the news, you know, and and. Uh, I sometimes feel that a lot of people are very confused when it comes to the word democracy and that it's, it's just one blueprint that seems to fit all. And I'm glad you shed some light on this one that, it's, that is that not the case as such. Okay, if you want to get in touch with um, uh, Julie, you can do that by going to the website and uh, look up all the show notes and all the links that are there. You can do that by going to culturematters.com, tick on the pot class, podcast tab and then find Julie's picture there. There as well, and the show notes, of course. Thanks again. It's been a pleasure that you were listening to the Culture Matters podcast. I know from my own experience that um, I do listen to other podcasts as well, and most of the hosts on a podcast, always ask for uh, reviews and ratings, because they're so important to actually, you know, promote a podcast. And I'm doing the same to you, and every time I hear someone else do that for their podcast, I think, yes, I should do this, I should do this, and then I come home, and then I tend to forget about this, and uh, slap myself um, uh, lightly in the face. But my question here, if you're listening to this in the car, if you're on your bike, if you're out jogging, or mowing the lawn, or, you know, driving, um, and you think, well, this might be worth a review and a rating put a um a knot in your handkerchief or in your tie or keep your fingers crossed until you get home and do me a real favor and please leave a review and a rating for the culture matters podcast thanks so much if you would and if you did already thanks even more i'll be back next week with another podcast take care till then bye bye
0: that's it for this episode The Culture Matters Podcast, helping you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences.